again everyone and welcome to now we're talking i'm rob danish from the university of waterloo and this is a podcast about communication skills so we've been talking a bunch lately about persuasion and in today's uh episode i'm going to move from the word persuasion to the word cooperation and cooperation is something i'm very interested in my own research and i've written some about uh in my view cooperation is a kind of process of persuasion that's the uh, as far opposite from compliance as you can get. So you're not forcing someone to comply with you or using some sort of psychological trick to gain compliance. You're encouraging someone to cooperate with your view or to, to co-create the world or co or move in a direction cooperatively kind of with you. So the emphasis is on on the with in cooperation. So I want to talk today about how to foster cooperation. And the title of of this episode is Cooperation Through Rapport. So developing rapport is the key component of getting someone to cooperate with you. So I want to talk about what rapport is and what communication practices help build rapport. And there's four communication practices. There's what's called the HEAR method, H-E-A-R method of building rapport that we're going to talk about. Um, so rapport is it leads to cooperation, and it's built on four foundational capacities. First, it's built on honest or honesty, honest communication or honesty. Second, it's built on empathy or empathetic communication. Third, it's built on autonomy. And fourth, it's built on reflection. And we've talked about reflection a bunch on this podcast. You'll see it come back here today again. Um, so, uh, I, I want to emphasize that rapport works both to get information from people, but also to help people change behaviors or beliefs. Um, so you don't, it does, it's not just a, a way of getting someone to talk. It's also getting someone to move in a particular direction. Uh, so, okay. I, and then in, for persuasion, I think we always need to be asking ourselves, in any kind of communicative interaction, what's the goal of this interaction? If people are being unreasonable, if people are being awkward, how you choose to respond to that awkwardness or that unreasonableness may help you leave the situation with the outcome you want, or at least not make the situation worse, but that's dependent on you knowing the goal. Um, So you gotta know the goal of your communicative interaction, and then you can deploy the here technique to achieve that goal. Uh, so why do why does this kind of here technique of building rapport matter, um, and especially why does it matter in in all interactions, including brief interactions, including with interactions with people you don't respect or don't care for, or don't agree with, um, you know? If so, for example, if I want my passport stamped, and I'm kind of in front of a clerk who gets to decide what that happen or if that happens, or if I want to get a parking space or my parking validated, or if I need to decide if I want to um, get in an argument at the car park over um, you know, a parking space or parking validation, I can still use rapport building strategies. I can still use the here technique in order to get what I want out of that conversation. Because 
using the here technique will allow me to leave my interactions and lead my interactions with confidence, with integrity, and with with clarity. Um, so I think that this technique works for building cooperation and gaining um, or allowing you to be more persuasive regardless of the conversation. Um, so, okay, we need honesty, we need empathy, um, we need uh, we need honesty, we, so we, we need empathy, we need autonomy, and we need uh, reflection. So let's talk about each of those in turn. Okay, so honesty involves avoiding using trickery or deceit, the kinds of tricks we talked about earlier in, in an earlier episode of the podcast that Robert Cialdini teaches about reciprocity, etc. Those are those those clickware responses of behavioral responses, you know, you're gonna not use them instead. Uh, so you're not gonna rely on those kinds of psychological tricks. Instead, you're gonna be clear, objective, and direct. You're also gonna need to be calm and to leave your emotions at the door. And you're gonna need to know what the outcome of the conversation is that you're after. Um, so there's a kind of, of balance of directness, calmness, and um, clarity about the goal or objective of a conversation. So I'm going to talk through an example of, of this kind of honesty at work. Um, so let's say you work with a colleague who keeps stealing your ideas. Uh, you participate with him on some working group, and then he goes to present the ideas of the group to uh, senior management, and he doesn't acknowledge the, your work or everyone else's work. He just kind of passes it off as his own work. So uh, you're going to go and talk to that person about what they've been doing and that you feel unacknowledged. So you need to be honest that this thing is going on, that you're not getting acknowledged. Uh, and you need to know what you want out of, out of the conversation. So you want some acknowledgement out of it. So here's how the conversation might go. So I'm playing the role of the person who's gone unacknowledged and I'm going to confront the, the person who's not acknowledging me. So, Joe, I need to talk to you about a situation that's been bothering me now for, for a couple days. Uh, when we met about that contract on Monday, I offered some really solid ideas and suggestions for how to move it forward. And then Joe says back, yeah, I know, that, you know, thanks for that. Then I say to him, but when you presented the strategy to the team, you presented it as entirely your idea, and I'm not happy with that. So Joe says back, well, I don't know if that's really true. I know we spoke about it on Monday, but I'm the one who wrote everything up. Anyway, you know I'm trying for a promotion. Does it really even matter to you? Okay, so Joe is being defensive. Now I need to ignore Joe's defensiveness. I realize you wrote up the document. I'm definitely not trying to take away from your input, but I'd like you to acknowledge my input to the rest of the team. It does really matter to me. And then Joe might say, well, I'm sorry if you feel I've misrepresented things. I think it's a bit dramatic, but I can certainly make sure people know the ideas were a joint effort between us. I don't like people thinking I've been unfair. You know, so he might be continue to be defensive. And then you could just say, thanks, Joe. I, I appreciate that a lot. Honesty requires restraint. It requires us to stay focused on what you need to know um, and what you think is really what you really want to achieve. So you're not being honest like on a, on a Jerry Springer show, just yelling and screaming about how you feel. It's a kind of restrained, direct, carefully worded honesty. So honesty is the first thing we need to do to build, um, build rapport. We're going to be clear and we're going to be direct. 
and we're not going to opt for passive forms of communication. We're going to control our emotions when we're being honest, and we're going to be kind of calm and slow and restrained. Empathy is the second thing we need. Most people think of it, of empathy as showing compassion or warmth toward another person, and that kind of confuses it with sympathy. Empathy is really about trying to genuinely understand what a person's thinking and feeling. It doesn't require softness or warmth. Instead, it requires that you show an analytical interest in the other person's core beliefs and values. That's the key to understanding the other person's behavior, to getting you know, inside their, their skin or inside their head or walking around in, in their shoes. And then modeling empathy is really important for kids to grow up to develop their own empathetic skills. So, you know, we can model it really easily for, for others. Um, oftentimes, we, we actually want empathy from other people, and um, they kind of demand it back from us instead of trying to understand how we're feeling. Uh, so what someone might say to, to me, like, do you realize how upset I am? I've been up since like 4 a.m. I've got insomnia. I can't sleep. And instead of empathizing, I might retaliate. I might say back, do you know how much I've had to do today? Like, I didn't get any sleep last night either. I haven't even sat down since it was six o'clock. I've been out running around doing, you know, so I get in a contest now. Um, if I'm in that kind of contest, contest, that's no good. That's not going to develop rapport at all. Um, okay, so um, let's imagine uh, a toddler you can do, you can practice empathy on a, on a toddler. And um, it's, it's easier with a toddler in some sense, but it's the same strategy you would use with other people. Um, so imagine a toddler who says, I want to wear my dinosaur t-shirt to school today, mom or dad. Uh, but that t-shirt hasn't been washed. Um, so it's all dirty. So you could say to the toddler, you can't, you know, it's dirty. And what are they going to say back? They're going to say, well, I want to. I want to wear it. Well, you say back, it's dirty. You can't wear it. Uh, you can't wear a dirty t-shirt to school. And they're going to say back, but I want to. I want to. And so on and so on. You know, back and forth we go. Okay, that's no good. That doesn't develop rapport. So what do you do instead? So you say, I know, son, you love that dinosaur t-shirt. It's your favorite t-shirt. I bet you were really looking forward to wearing that t-shirt. And I can see you're really upset about it not being able to wear it, but it's dirty. So we're going to wash it today and you can wear it tomorrow. I promise. Today, instead, you need to pick from one of your other t-shirts. And suddenly we might have to, you might get some, some, some different behavior from your three-year-old. Now you might not get it right away. Um, it might take a little bit more empathy, but you see you've analytically identified the feeling and the thought the person's experiencing in it and articulated it for them. So, you know, that's kind of the central lesson of empathy to kind of analyze the situation and then articulate for the other person what it seems like they're feeling or they're thinking. Okay, uh, next is autonomy. Um, Autonomy is about whether or not we think or we feel someone is trying to control us. And that has an enormous influence on our behavior. So giving people the freedom to choose, um, it appeals to their instinct, to the kind of instinct to drive within all of us to control our destiny. Um, so, you know, if you watch the movies, 
uh, movies tell us that the way you get a criminal to cooperate is to threaten them or to induce them through a plea bargain or to appeal to their higher nature or to demand that they do something or to keep the pressure on them, etc. That's all garbage. That's not how getting people to do something works. Um, most, none of those methods are actually effective at securing information or getting the behavior you want. Um, you know, in fact, good police interviews are not based on manipulation, deception, or coercion. Instead, they're based on giving the criminal some autonomy, allowing that person or, or the person you're, you're trying to get to cooperate the space to act on their own and to make decisions on their own. Uh, so you have to offer people choices in conversation. Um, so here's a powerful example of autonomy uh, that involves the interrogation of Russell Williams, who was a colonel in the Canadian Royal Air Force. Williams was convicted of the murder of a couple women in 2010. Uh, also, he was convicted of a number of sexual assaults and breaking and entering, etc. And he was being interviewed by an Ottawa Province police detective. And this detective, I think, demonstrated a mastery of building rapport and he gave his suspect a sense of choice. So the detective began with the interview by uh, calling attention to the, the person's rights and freedoms. So he says to him, look, you can take a break at any time. You can consult with a lawyer at any time. You don't have to answer any of the questions I've got for you. Um, it feels kind of real natural when you hear the audio recording of, of this officer doing it, like he's done it a hundred times. And, you know, that he's non-judgmental. Um, and, and the guy doesn't actually ask for a break. He doesn't ask for a lawyer. He doesn't refuse to answer any questions. But the police officer gives him this autonomy. Uh, now, the police officer is also under enormous pressure to get this person to talk. So, like, it's a really, really big deal. So after around four hours of questioning um, and the presentation of some pretty damning evidence... Uh, so they, they show this, this guy some evidence, then the police officer asks, so, you know, are we going to talk now? And the criminal kind of responds by saying, I want to minimize the impact on my wife. So uh, almost before the criminal even finishes the sentence, the officer says, so do I. Um, and then the criminal kind of looks up and says, how do we do that? And then suddenly you have the interviewer, the, the police officer and the suspect, they become a we and they're unified by this shared goal. And so the police officer says back, well, we start by telling the truth. And then there's a long pause and the, the criminal, um, you know, sort of is thinking. Uh, and then he finally says, OK. And so they're looking for a, a suspect that they think this guy is, is murdered or harmed. And the police officer says, OK, so where is she? Um, and then he, you know, the, the guy says, well, have you got a map? And, you know, he shows them the map. Um, but he does, he gets this far by like constantly giving agency or autonomy to, to the criminal. Um, and you can get a lot of cooperation as soon as, as long as you make sure someone feels like they have all the agency, um, all the agency they 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 want. Uh, so let's talk about uh, um, an example of a doctor who's going to try to get you to reduce your risk of diabetes. Um, so he'll tell you that doctor will tell you that you're eating too much sugar and processed food, and that you need to eat healthier and exercise more. And if you don't, you're going to get diabetes. 
but you already knew that already, right? So why haven't you done it? And I think that, so in, in this example, the reason we struggle to change our behavior um, uh, be, is that we don't just respond to just well-meaning advice from a doctor. It's just like not how it works. And so in order for us to change, we normally need to feel that the change is in line with what we believe and what our core values are. Um, so imagine a conversation with a doctor who's trying to get their patient to, to stop eating too much sugar. So the doctor says, you know, what have your concerns been since you've been feeling kind of tired or you know, sluggish lately? And then the patient says, well, I don't feel right. I feel pretty run down and unwell, and I'm worried there might be something more seriously wrong with me. And the doctor says back, tell me more about what you think might actually be wrong. And then you say, well, I'm getting up about three times in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. I don't want to get the, I don't want that to get worse. I worry it's something like cancer or heart disease. I'm not getting any younger, but I'm also not exactly old. So I don't know if it could be one of those things. So the doctor says back, okay, so you feel like these symptoms might be related to something more serious. And that worries you because you don't want anything to get worse. And so the person says, yeah, exactly. I mean, I can hardly play a game of, of basketball with my kids. Uh, without feeling the need to lie down right afterward. What about if I have grandkids? I don't want to be just be watching them while I sit on a chair like my dad always did. Okay, well, here's the doctor now. I can tell you that I'm very glad you've come in. I understand you're concerned it might be something serious, such as cancer or heart disease, and that is probably making you feel anxious. From your symptoms, I think it's unlikely to be either of those things, but I do have some concerns that you might have early indicators of type 2 diabetes. I know you want to turn things around and get back to the point where you can play basketball with your kids. There's a lot of ways we can do that. Uh, we can make some positive changes to your diet and exercise routines, and that way of reducing stress can be helpful. So in, the, in this kind of conversation, the doctor has listened to the patient's worries and concerns. He's reflected them back, which we'll talk about in a second, and he's uncovered a kind of motivating value wanting to be able to be active with the guy's children or grandchildren. And that value is going to be linked to the strategies the doctor will suggest. So the, the patient can feel like they have the autonomy to decide what matters, and then they're pursuing the thing that matters to them. Uh, and that's also a kind of sense of autonomy. Um, okay, so... Um, Remember, with autonomy, we like to be in charge of our own destiny. If you feel trapped or controlled, then you're not going to want to cooperate. And we also need to recognize that other people need independence and choice. And when the stakes are high, you need to start from a position of choice. Um, okay, and then the last thing that we do is, is reflection. Reflection is about listening carefully to what's been said and repeating it back or paraphrasing what has been said to, the, to you. So it's important to select what you want to know more about, not just parrot the last thing someone says, but you're reflecting back and repeating back what others have had to say. Reflection is how you keep a conversation moving forward. It's simple, it's powerful, and it's critical to building to building rapport. It's something I've talked a bunch about in this uh, on this podcast, but um, maybe uh, I mean there's lots of examples we've discussed we've talked about. Um, so here's a, a, a first date conversation as, a, as an example. So the girl asks, so where'd you go on your last vacation? And the guy's like, uh, I don't really want to say. So the girl is like, well, why? Why? What's the secret about that? Because it was in Benidorm. 
And the girl looks up and is like, oh, I see. Nice. You probably shouldn't give me any details. No, listen, you've got me. The guy says, no, listen, you got me all wrong. I wasn't like that. Uh, it wasn't a stat. Uh, so, um, you know, this is like a wild party kind of place. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a staggered, it wasn't a, like a, uh, a party or anything. I didn't get any embarrassing tattoos, you know, though nothing crazy went on. So why'd you go there? Yeah, well, I got a super cheap package deal and I, I went with two of my friends from school. Um, but there wasn't any karaoke or beer bongs or like excessive drinking, I swear. Um, but we really went there because we wanted to go surfing and we wanted to hang out in the old town. So the girl says back, surfing, that's cool. Is that the sort of holiday you like? Is it something sporty like that? And the guy says, yeah, I, I'm not really into the all-inclusive holiday kind of prison camp scene. And the girl says back, prison camp? What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, you get your towel on, the, on a sun lounger eight, you sit by the big pool and that's all you do. So the girl says back, so you're not a fan of having somebody else in charge of your schedule? No, the guy says, no, not really. I'd much rather be out in nature and really experience a place, eat with the locals. So the girl says back, so not much relaxing then. No, and the guy says, no, I wouldn't say that. I just like being on my own schedule. And the girl says, so you'd like to, so you'd say you're a bit of a rebel, right? Okay, I'm going on and on now, but you see the the woman is reflecting back to the man what, it's reflective listening. She's just reflecting back. And the dude is going to feel uh, heard and acknowledged and um, willing and able to cooperate because he's felt heard and acknowledged. So the foundation of building rapport with someone is being honest, empathetic, giving them autonomy, and reflectively listening. It's the HEAR technique. If you practice the HEAR technique in your conversations with anybody ever, whether it's a clerk, um, a person at the, at the airport, you're trying to get on an earlier flight, your mother, your father, your, your wife, your uh, girlfriend, your husband, your best friend, whoever, you're going to develop rapport, and rapport is going to help them cooperate with you. They're going to want to cooperate with you if they feel that sense of rapport. So remember, in the course of your conversations here, honesty, empathy, autonomy, reflection. Those are the cornerstones of, of rapport and cooperation. Okay, there was a lot packed into that this episode, um, but thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back shortly with uh, another new episode. I'm going to do one on uh, presentations. We haven't talked much about that. Um, but we'll talk about that next. All right. Thanks everyone.